Welcome to our second lesson in this particular time, a series that we are working on, and um, our time is marked by a virus. Uh, we know it as COVID-19. Tonight, I'm talking to you about a prelude, a prelude to the end of times. A prelude is a preparation. It, it, a synonym of that, it would be a preparation. It denotes the commencement um, or the start of something, of the beginning. The length of this prelude is unknown, but the occurrence of it is undeniable. Now, history tells us a story, and the repeating cycles are already written. We have a lot of indications and and markings, uh, landmarks, as to where we are. I will say that God is so good to us, he allows us this moment to right ourselves, to correct our ways, um, as the prophet would have said to the king Hezekiah, to get our houses in order. It is a blessing to have time to get your house in order. And when I speak of that, um, I speak of your spiritual life, your walk with God in order. In fact, the Bible, um, Peter wrote it this way, that the Lord is not slack concerning his promise. Second Peter chapter two, verse nine, chapter three, verse nine. He's not slack concerning his promise as some men. He's not a man that he should lie, but he's patient with us. The Lord is long-suffering to us word. Here's the wonderful line. Not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The Lord is very good to us. He's given us this time. It's a prelude to the very end of days. Now, as a recap, uh, just to, to go back a little bit, we spoke last week about our position as a nation and as a people. Just to reiterate for all of you, I do believe that the United States is currently the greatest nation on the planet. We are so blessed to have this time and this country. We are blessed beyond measure. We've been given wealth and material things. Uh, we have innovators and scientists and uh, medical uh, facilities everywhere. We have doctors and um, we have innovation. It's wonderful. But we should ask why we have these things. Why do we enjoy such benefits and pleasures? And, and um, how did this come about? Did we create this? And what is the uh, what is uh, these blessings about? Was this our own doing? The answer is given, but I want to revisit that for a moment. The reason why America is blessed is because, first of all, we have blessed Israel. And Genesis chapter 2 verses, chapter 12 verses 2 and 3, the Bible says it this way. I will make thee of a great nation, Abraham, God speaking Abraham, and I will bless thee. I'll make your name great. You will be a blessing, verse 3, and I will bless them that bless thee. I'll curse him that curseth thee, and in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. So the first reason why America is blessed is because we have blessed Israel that's the first reason. And the second reason comes from Psalm 33 and 12. And the psalmist said, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. 
and the people whom he hath chosen for his own inheritance. These are the reasons why that we're blessed. We have been a blessing to Israel and we began as a nation whose God uh, is the Lord. But something has happened over time. There's been a decaying of these of these wonderful um, attributes of America. I'll call it or attribute it to the spirit of the age. This is not a good spirit. It's a demonic force. And many people in America have begun to denounce, routinely denounce Israel. In fact, there are some in America that are rising up against the nation of Israel. Can you imagine? This is our first and crucial mistake. The second is the polar of Psalm 33 and 12. The second mistake is, is the polar. Instead of, instead of being this God-fearing nation, um, we are now removing holy things and godly things out of our culture. Our culture is shifting uh, terribly. And this constant state of flux has one, um, uh, one uh, consistent, uh, it's an oxymoron, but it has one consistent thing, and that is the removal of God. The absence of God always creates a void filled by darkness. This is a, a, an axiom of truth. Where God is, is removed, um, darkness fills that void. This could be called a, a constant compound, like in chemistry. So the, the less recognition and worship of God creates greater darkness and demonic activity. When we refuse to acknowledge the Lord um, as a people, as a nation, when our leaders refuse to acknowledge the Lord, we're in big trouble. The more leaders that we have um, that are secular, the less spiritual our nation becomes. So just think with me. A few years ago, there was an outcry when Franklin Graham ended his uh, inauguration prayer by saying, in Jesus' name, uh, you would have thought that he would have um, said a curse word. Uh, our world welcomes these slang words, but rejects the name of Jesus. And um, this has been happening over and over again, more so as the years go by. And the list is long. Uh, I can move past this point because... We know that there are many people that are in full rejection of the Lord. No recognition of God. It's, it's, what, it's what made us great. Whose nation, who's, who believes in the Lord, whose God is the Lord. Uh, last week, we saw something happen. It was, it was not a good thing. Uh, Governor Cuomo of New York, who was no less the leader and chief executive officer, executive officer of that territory. I can put it that way. Um, he said, God did not do this. What was he referring to? He was saying that his efforts and the medical teams and doctors and frontline people and nurses, they are winning the battle against uh, coronavirus. But he didn't just stop there. He was saying that all of their collected effort to shelter in place the good people of of his territory, of his state, uh, were flattening the curve. God didn't do this, he said. We did this. God deserves no credit. 
This was a human victory. And so he's joined by a host of people. So I'm not trying to just single him out. He speaks for thousands of people today in America uh, that, that, um, that believe that secularism is the answer. Humanism is the answer, not God, not a reliance on God. These are clear signals, landmarks, no less. Uh, we've moved them away. And now we are moving away from a nation whose God is the Lord. So indeed, we need to pray for revival. And I believe that God can give us revival. But the American church uh, needs to really pay attention now. Uh, and as, as we referenced last week, our arrogance, we think sometimes that all the revivals have to happen here if there's going to be end-time revival. And I would argue that... Um, that there are revivals in other part of the world. Now, I do believe the American church, we have a, we have an obligation. We have many talents and gifts. We have material possessions and we need to do something with our resources to spur on our missionaries and worldwide revivals and help them. Our resources are going to make a big difference. And it could be that the Lord, uh, will allow us time so that we can support a worldwide harvest. I do think locally, I do pray for our neighborhoods, our city. We've made covenants with our cities. We've prayed for them. We canvas, we work, we teach Bible studies, we fast, and uh, we believe that God can give our churches in, uh, in North America a great revival, specifically the United States. But we don't want to think that um, the only place that revival can happen is in the United States. There are other nations that are desperate and they need help and they're hungry for God. And we need to make sure that we do all that we can to spur upon a worldwide revival. Um, there are other things that we can do as a nation, as a Christian nation, but we'll get to those in time. Just know that we've been blessed, not so we can all have a good retirement, not so that we can all have a nice car and homes and be able to go to grocery stores and, and uh, press the Amazon button, whatever we want to. Um, this, these blessings, these gifts have been given to us for the benefit of the kingdom because there will be a day when none of the things that we have today will amount to anything and they can all be taken from us. In fact, in a moment... Our entire economy can collapse and never recover. For those of you who want to dig a little deeper, um, look into our massive growing national debt. Trillions of dollars. In, in a single quarter, we could actually take out more money in debt uh, than we would in the entire year. Trillions of dollars. We have no idea. It's unfathomable how much money is being created. And then... Uh, juxtaposed against the IMF, the International Monetary Fund. Um, for those of you who want to dig a little deeper, the IMF is the central uh, trading um, headquarters of the world. So let's say one country wants to sell goods to another country. Uh, they have different currencies. So they would trade their currencies into American dollars and then they would exchange goods and then trade those currencies back into their own indigenous dollars or their own country's currency. So the American dollar has been the world IMF trading currency. 
Um, but now we know that more and more countries are beginning to conduct their own business between countries. They're starting to circumvent the American dollar. And the American dollar is losing its value. And this is a dangerous thing for our economy. The traditional channels are being circumvented and they, um, uh, they may not always exist. Uh, our economy has, has been, has been blessed of God. But as we remove God, who knows if the economy will stay, uh, blessed? I would submit that it will not be blessed. Um, most of the world cannot print their own money, but we can print our own money. And today it's backed by nothing. Um, FDR, President Franklin Roosevelt, he took America in a different direction. If you do a little research, you'll know that in 1933, the American dollar was backed by the gold standard. But on May 1st, there was a decree, a mandate given by FDR for everyone to turn in their gold pieces. In fact, um, it looks like it was illegal for you to have gold in, on May 1st, 1933. All the gold was supposed to be given back uh, to America, and they would give you dollars for it. And then we, remo- we were removed from that gold standard, which means that our money used to be worth something. Now it's just paper, and we're printing it by the trillions and we're flooding our markets. Um, my point is don't trust in government officials. Don't trust in money. Uh, we have it for a moment, but it could be gone um, in the same moment. Uh, the value of money. So many people have fought for it, fought over it, spent their life trying to make it. No wonder why Jesus said, One man cannot serve God or money. He didn't say God or the devil. He, he submitted that there are only two, two entities, God and money. Can you imagine? So if you think that we're secure, then you're just trusting in government and monies and things that can fall very, very quickly. Uh, most of the empires of the world fell in short order. We'll talk about it a little bit, a little bit. But this is not a scare tactic just to make people frightened. None of these things that I'm saying are meant to scare people. Um, but if you're not ready for the end time, if you're, if you're not right with God, you should be very concerned. Um, there should be a healthy fear about you if you're not right with God. And you don't have to come to this house to get right with God. But you have to go to God to get right with God. So I would just say... He's willing, he's patient, he's given us a time, a prelude. Um, he's pulled back the curtain a little bit to show us how unstable the world can be. And he's calling everyone back to the cross of Calvary. So don't let these things um, overwhelm you, but also don't let a recovery, a time of recovery, make you numb to the reality of the days that you're living in. I believe, um, I, I'm hoping that there will be a recovery, that our economy will start to recover, that people will, will recover, but it's going to be easy for people to wipe their, their brows. We can all wipe our collective brow and say, boy, I'm glad that's over. Let's just move on now. Uh, I say this is a warning shot across the bow. We are on the end time clock. The clock is ticking. Something is happening. Something has been happening. And 
The Bible declares it so. And we are living at the precipice, the brink of the end time that the Bible speaks of. But as things begin to open back up, um, I pray that we do not become desensitized into thinking that this was just another anomaly and we'll go back to a normal lifestyle. But there will be people who do that. Now, just tracking few the uh, tracking back just through a couple of decades ago, um, when 9/11 hit us and we were flat-footed, didn't know, didn't have any idea what what was about to happen. People rushed off to go to churches. Churches filled up. But then after a few years, um, those same buildings that began to fill up with people, they had less people than they did before 9-11, pre-9-11 numbers. And I'm very concerned that a lot of people will tune into churches now. They're going to watch prophecy teachers and gather all this information, and then there'll be this other lull, and then... And then we'll just go on about our business. Be very careful now because the Lord is patient, but there will come a day when it'll all wrap up. Before we go to the next segment, let me just say that the Bible uh, speaks for itself and there are many people who will offer uh, personal insights. But the Bible says that the scripture is by no private interpretation. So I'm not giving timelines as far as specific dates, and we're going to talk about it in the scripture. Um, but I do believe that the Bible gives us uh, seasons and cyclical type of historical writings that helps us with where we are today. I want to read from Matthew 24, chapter 24, and I'm reading from the New King James Bible. Here's the scripture in verse 3. The Lord is sitting on the Mount of Olives. The disciples come to him privately. They tell us, they, they say to the Lord, tell us when these things will be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age. Isn't that a great question? They ask the right question. And then Jesus answered them in verse four, take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will deceive many. And you will hear of wars. Watch this rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled. All these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. The end is not yet. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines. We have seen that. That's self-explanatory. People dying of hunger. Pestilence, those are diseases, viruses, and other plagues. We have seen that. The Spanish plague wiped out millions, maybe 500 million people. Um, the bubonic plague, millions of people died. Many, many plagues that have happened. Earthquakes. Just, I read just the other day, hundreds and hundreds of earthquakes have happened in, in Utah. There are other fault lines that are being discovered. Earthquakes more than ever before in recorded history. Right now, there are more earthquakes happening than ever before. In various places, these earthquakes, he said, verse 8, all these are the beginning of sorrows. All these are the beginning. It's a prelude. It's a, it's a commencement. Something is about to happen. So I encourage you, pause. Maybe even push the pause button wherever you are and just pray right now. Don't, don't wait to get your house in order. 
you are watching something happening. You're experiencing something today that has never been done. And if by chance you're watching this uh, long after this video is released, don't wait another second. Because if you think life has gone back to normal, it will never be the same way it was again. Think of 9-11. How could you get on a plane? You could carry whatever you want to. I remember carrying so many bags on a plane. The early 90s, we'd just pack whatever we wanted to. There was, wasn't even a weight limit. Hundreds of pounds. You just get on the plane and fly and take whatever you wanted to take. And today, it's very different. Why? Because 9-11 came. And the same thing, only this is much greater than 9-11. 9-11 was an occurrence that happened that affected the world, but it did not have the impact. In fact, comparatively, it was a pebble in a pond compared to a massive shaking of the whole earth. Amen. I pray that you would take a moment and seek the Lord now. The next segment we want to focus in on Israel and specifically on Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the capital of the world. There's a lot of pushback today about that city. Uh, recently, I read um, that the president of Turkey is fighting against um, the recognition of Jerusalem. People in the United States also fight against the recognition of Jerusalem. And an incredible thing happened when our current president moved the embassy to Jerusalem. There was an outcry. Uh, there was a pledge of war because there was a recognition that this most holy city would, in fact, be recognized by the United States as the capital of Israel. There's no other uh, city or nation with as much focus as Israel. Thousands of people can die in other lands and other countries, but if a couple of people die or killed in the streets of Jerusalem, it makes national and world headlines. God said he would put his name there and the whole world will focus there. So to understand where we are, we're going to focus on Jerusalem and we're also going to need history to teach us. History is the great teacher uh, that we have today. So let's just do a little bit of world history. We'll start with mom and dad, Adam and Eve. And they had a dysfunctional family, and it was not very good. Their sons had uh, conflict, and, and the first murder happened um, right after, or at some time after, the garden. Uh, and they didn't even have uh, TV. So how about that? Adam um, and Eve, uh, they, they are um, dominating the earth. Um, and then there is a decline in obedience. So disobedience removed them from the garden, and then there's a resurgence of obedience and sacrifice unto the Lord, and then once again, there is another decline, and the people fall into disobedience. It culminates um, into a person who found grace in the eyes of the Lord, Noah. And Noah builds an ark, a flood comes, and the world is wiped out. God begins again with Noah. And Noah and his family replenish the earth. But there is another decline, and again, there's something that happens. It, it, it culminates into 
a city, Babel. There's a tower built there, and God is displeased, and he scatters the nations uh, through language. And so now the world will be populated in different parts because uh, they cannot understand each other. From that moment, a man, Terah, has a son, Abram, Abraham. Abraham marries Sarah. They have a son, Isaac. He is the child of promise. He's a son of the covenant. And Isaac has sons. He has twin sons, uh, Esau and Jacob. And Jacob steals the birthright. And Jacob has many sons. Um, in his plight uh, to recover his life, the Lord changes Jacob's name to Israel. And Israel, um, he doesn't, is not just a nation, uh, written about later, but he is an, a man. He is a man with a new name, the recovery of a life. And so Jacob's new name will be Israel. We'll, we won't call the people that come after him the children of Jacob. We'll call them the children of Israel. Jacob will have 12 sons. We know that Jesus will come from the tribe of Judah, but Joseph is the son that would be used to save his family. Joseph is going to go to Egypt. He'll become second in command of Egypt. He will own the signet ring of Pharaoh. No one is higher um, than Joseph except for the king, the Pharaoh. Joseph will save his family, and then they will all move to the area around Egypt. This family will grow. Israel will grow. The sons of, of Jacob will multiply. And the children, now we'll call them the children of Israel, the Hebrew people, will multiply. There will be millions of them. And a new Pharaoh will rise up, and he won't know uh, Joseph. He has no understanding of Joseph. He is afraid because the people have grown so much. And this is a pivot in history, a moment in history. This speaks to us. I'm, I'm going to point out two of these. Egypt is a major moment in the life of the Jews, the Hebrews. It's a major moment. And so this Pharaoh enslaves them. The children of Israel are enslaved and Egypt is a hard place. They cannot get out. They cannot escape. There is no respite. Egypt, it's a place of horrors. There's death around them. And then comes Moses. He becomes the deliverer. He leads them out through plagues. He, they cross the Red Sea. And after which the Lord establishes his law, the Ten Commandments, the law of Moses. All of this is happening at Mount Sinai, uh, a a land of promise is delivered to them. The tabernacle is, is given to Moses. They build a tabernacle. And there is now a movable place of worship where blood is spilled and the sins of mankind are rolled back or pushed forward, whatever way you want to, to conclude, for one year, but not forever. But again, there is a declining of, of obedience and the people... Uh, drift off. They're rebellious towards God. And God uh, sends the people um, um, into, into other harm's way. Joshua has led them so far, but now other leaders will rise up. We'll call them judges. And then at the end of that period is a unique man. I hope you're taking notes. So 
we're, we're walking down Adam and Eve and Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and from Jacob to Joseph, Joseph to Moses, Moses to Joshua. And then these judges come about at the end of those at that period of time um, comes a unique man. His name is Samuel. He he wears many hats. He is the high priest. He is uh, he he forms um, the office of a judge. He is a prophet in his own right. He anoints kings um, and he will anoint the first king of Israel and the second king of Israel. Uh, the first king of Israel is King Saul. He's chosen among the people. Uh, he starts well, but but quickly he falls into disobedience and then the kingdom is stripped from him and then David is anointed and David will live uh, and die and pass on the kingdom to Solomon. And then Solomon, uh, his son, doesn't do right. The kingdom is split. There's a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. I'm going quite, kind of quickly here. The north kingdom is is ruled by a man named Jeroboam. Um, and we're going to call the north kingdom Israel. There's a southern kingdom. It's called now Judah. In, in the northern kingdom, there are cities like Shechem, um, and Bethel, and the capital of the northern kingdom is Samaria. In the southern kingdom, the capital is Jerusalem. The southern kingdom is smaller. Judah is smaller, but but Jerusalem is the pivot. Everyone wants to be there. That's the key. And these two kingdoms, these this divided nation, exists for a little while, but. But the people devolve again. And kings will come and go. Most of them don't do well. A few of them are obedient to God. Disobedience mostly rules the land. And the people fall into degradation and into sin. And then other nations come to capture them and to defeat them. And then they cry out to God. This repeats over and over again. They fall into sin, they're in disobedience, and then they call on God. And God rescues them again and again. Until finally, the end of that period is, has come, and a nation called Assyria in 722, they come to conquer the northern kingdom. The southern kingdom, Judah, is mostly untouched, but there's a pressing against them. Until finally, Babylon comes. And Babylon comes in 586 to take um, the southern kingdom. They'll capture um, Jerusalem and they will exile so many of those Jews into Babylon. Babylon will, will reign for a short period of time um, because there's another kingdom that's coming, the Medes and the Persians, Persia. It's led by a man named Cyrus the Great. He will come and in 538, he will come, 536, 538 BCE, he will come. Cyrus is an interesting man. Now, I'm going to go back to Egypt. Remember Egypt, they were bound and they were kept in Egypt. The people were kept in Egypt. In Persia, they're also kept in Persia. But Pharaoh and Cyrus the Great are two different people. Pharaoh is a hard taskmaster. He is a slave owner. But Cyrus conquers people in a different way. Let me read to you the description of Cyrus. Cyrus, it is written, was a born ruler of men. He inaugurated a new policy in the treatment of conquered peoples. Instead of tyrant, being a tyrant, 
and hold him in subjection by brute force. He treated those people, his subjects, with consideration. He won them as friends. He was particularly considerate of the religions of the conquered people. And that gave him authority over them. There was an era of peace. We're going to go back to Cyrus in a moment, but let's follow through. He didn't reign forever. In fact, Persia, Persia kept Jerusalem and Israel bound for a long period of time. But then came the Greeks, and the Greeks were led by Alexander the Great, another great. So you have Cyrus the Great, and then you have Alexander the Great. And the Greeks were powerfully influential. They had libraries, and they had language, and they had innovation, and there was mathematics. Uh, the Greeks were learned people. But they were taken over several hundred years later by Rome, now the Roman Empire. All of this will fall into line of prophecy. Daniel is going to see a statue. We're going to talk about that statue. He's going to see a statue with these empires, one after the other, starting with Babylon. The head of the statue, the head of this great statue was gold, representing Babylon. It's going to come all the way down to a feet of clay and iron, uh, dirt and iron. We're, we'll talk about that. That was Rome. Rome had another great. His name was Herod the Great. Now, the Herod that we read about in the Bible, that's not Herod the Great. That's Herod Antipas. So Herod the Great had a son, had several sons. One of them, Herod Antipas, is the Herod that you read about in the New Testament. And they will rule. Rome will rule in very similar ways, a little more harsh than Persia. They'll allow religions to... to uh, be maintained by their conquered people, but they do not want insurrection against Rome. So they'll they develop very cruel, tortured method and and methods of of death and murder. But Rome will start to fall apart. They'll fray. Rome will start to fray, and part of the reason why is because they traded work for entertainment. And the Colosseums now were, were held and, 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 um, games were being played 365 days out of the year. Every day there were games, entertainment, and then also debauchery of sin, sinfulness, lust, sexual sins overtook Rome. And Jerusalem will eventually be destroyed by, by a man named Nero. They called him the beast. And Nero destroyed Jerusalem in 70 AD. Now comes these prophetic words of the Lord and Jerusalem is being destroyed, burned and Jerusalem won't rise again for a long time. Hundreds and hundreds of years later, from that moment, from Matthew 24 all the way to this day today, these days are the countdown and now we're in the last of times. I want to go back to Egypt and Persia. The Pharaoh that was was an angry and an enslaving man and Cyrus the Great who negotiated uh, a pseudo type of peace. In fact, Cyrus uh, was allowing things to happen. He was allowing people to return to Jerusalem, to rebuild Jerusalem, to rebuild um, the temple. There was things he was allowing people to do. But I just want to caution you it seemed like getting out of Persia was easy. But because you could live in a secular land and still practice your religion, 
it was a lot harder getting out of Persia than it was getting out of Egypt. Getting out of Egypt was very difficult. They had to break free. It, it happened uh, through great turmoil, strife, terrible plagues, horrible plagues. The whole land was afflicted. Fear came upon everyone. Darkness and, and locusts and frogs and water turning into blood and hail. And, and then finally, and after all those plagues, then the angel of death coming to get out of Egypt. They had to run for their lives, escape. They were pinned in between the Red Sea and the armies of Pharaoh coming to bring them back. And they had to cross the Red Sea. The Red Sea had to drown out Pharaoh and his armies. To get out of Egypt was an arduous task. To get out of Persia looks like it was a lot easier. You could come and go basically as you pleased. But you see, that is where the issue lies. When a people or a nation can practice their religion in a secular nation, it becomes more difficult to be devout to your religion. Because, as we spoke about last week, there are options. You can have a walk with God or not. You can pick it up or no. You can serve the Lord and still live in a secular, humanistic way. And America, America is struggling because we rushed to get out of bondage we ran to break, we ran to, to find this place to break free, but now we have allowances. It's tolerance, but not, in, but not true freedom. It's consideration of our religious beliefs mingled with all kinds of other practices. The difference between Egypt and Persia, one was forced to be there enslaved without any ability to make a sacrifice while the other nation was compliant you can make a sacrifice but still live here i'll make it good for you here cyrus said and that is the story of america right now and we're looking at it i have one more segment uh in this particular lesson to go over with you but through the history we can see where we are as the american citizens this baby nation of 244 years old. We've gone through all the cycles. Not only did we leap forward uh, with our founding fathers who wrote a constitution, who wrote amendments, who wrote the ability to correct itself, and it did. And it continually does. Now, as quick as we created this nation, it's now dissolving and what it, what's the problem? The problem is not economy. The problem is obedience. The problem always begins with obedience. And the solution always begins with obedience. Maybe I should say it a better way. The problem always begins with disobedience or the lack of obedience. And the solution always begins with obedience and turning back to God. I would say that the way for us to recover is not a vaccine at all. The way for us to recover is not a medical advancement at all. In fact, our economy will recover quicker when we turn to God 
than any amount of money that the feds can pour in to our businesses and to our personal lives. I see Persia rising up. I see the absence of the struggle in America. You see other nations, they struggle to be a Pentecostal in China means imprisonment. To be a Christian means imprisonment in China. To turn your life to Jesus Christ, to proclaim him Lord of all in most of the Middle Eastern countries, it means that you would lose your home, your job, your businesses. You're subject to torture, all kinds of things. You can't just say, I'm, I'm a Christian. You can't say Jesus is Lord. You can't, if you are part of those nations, in fact, it's illegal to convert any Muslim to Christianity. And most of those countries, in fact, maybe all of those countries, and maybe someone with, with, with greater knowledge of this can, can attest that there are no countries, Muslim countries, that you can just go in and just uh, summarily convert people into this Christian way. America, we, we, are, we are blessed. And we have to know that we have to turn our full attention to God. So I'm speaking to all the people today. Maybe some of you have, you knew the doctrine, you knew the truth, and you've drifted away from this. So I would say, don't become desensitized. Don't think this will pass. Run back to your first love. Run back to your first commitments. Whatever those commitments were, get back to the the day that you were the most committed. Don't make allowances for yourself. This is the day. It's a prelude to the end time. It's here. And I would submit to you, we're living these days, even as tragic as it has been for many people, we're living these days because of the goodness of the Lord.